Our special guest for this episode is Jeff Crawl. Jeff is a teacher, math coach, educational researcher, and huge Ted Lasso fan. He is also the author of the book, Necessary Conditions, which, quote, equips teachers to design classroom experiences that increase engagement and build all students' identities as mathematicians, unquote. This is one of the reasons we wanted to talk to Jeff about planning. Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. Warning, we expect that you have watched Ted Lasso. There will be spoilers ahead and scenes that don't make sense if you don't have some familiarity with the show. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us on the Teaching Like Ted Lasso podcast. Would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me, John. My name is Jeff Crawl. I am the author of a book called Necessary Conditions, focusing on secondary math instruction. And I'm also currently a, a soon-to-be-completed PhD student at the University of Wyoming for math education. So as we were discussing before the show, I'm sort of in this sort of in-between state where I haven't quite graduated yet. I haven't quite defended, but I've got my thesis ready to go. In the meantime, I'm just trying to keep myself busy by writing a lot and doing PD with, with schools that, I'm, that I have a, a, a relationship with. And of course, appearing on this wonderful podcast. <laughs> well, it was very kind of you to join us. <laughs> How did you select Wyoming as a place to, to do your PhD? <laughs> it's a good question because I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is about an hour south of Laramie, Wyoming. I joke uh, that I was <laughs> I wanted to uh, get my PhD, but I, I wanted to make sure I paid out-of-state tuition. <laughs> because it is pretty silly because we do have a university in the town that I live in, Colorado State University. It's where I got my master's. But honestly, the program was really well and really thoughtfully constructed. I, I actually enrolled and then unenrolled in the Colorado State PhD program. It didn't have the focus area around math instruction and curriculum that I was looking for. So I just kind of did a little cursory search around the area and, and found, you know, a few possible matches and University of Wyoming just seemed like a really great program to be a part of. And I've, you know, have nothing but wonderful things to say about it. And they also are really good about remote wow. students. Like, in fact, they have, you know, some of my cohort are students from Virginia and California. And so they're really adept at providing a PhD experience for students, even though they're remote. Oh, that's excellent, especially with so many people going into education PhDs while they're teaching. I'm sort of the outlier in that I'm I'm not a full-time teacher, uh, but a lot of classes are, you know, offered in the evenings, remote, and they, they sort of are tailored to the, you know, the working teacher that wants to get their PhD. And you, you haven't made the announcement of what university is going to receive your talents. <laughs> and of course, you have the option of as you were saying, like consulting work and kind of working with schools and districts in other capacities. I don't want to presume academia. So no, I mean that honestly, that's the goal. Like I'm I'm very upfront about that. I would love nothing more than to teach. I've I I've had the opportunities to teach both math and math pedagogy courses at University of Wyoming and some of the community colleges in the area. And it just reminded me how much like I actually really just I love teaching and uh, whether it's math, whether it's math pedagogy, those just give me such 
you know, joy and to develop those relationships with students and to see them go on to achieve really great things. That's just, that's, you know, that would be a dream job. So that's what I'm sort of hoping for at some point. I, I, can, I can identify with that. Mm -hmm. All righty. So it is a Ted Lasso podcast. So I have to ask you, are you familiar at all with the show? I am familiar. Uh, the the scene where he is competing with Rupert in darts is one of my favorite scenes in television history, punctuated by barbecue sauce <laughs> <laughs> when he hits the bullseye on the last throw. So love the show. Love the scenes in the show. I've been a big fan of the creator of the show. He also created the show Scrubs. Mm -hmm. which is my one of my favorite shows of all time actually another like great side show about teaching even though it's a medical uh, sitcom there's a lot of great mentor mentee stuff from the show scrubs as well so so ted lasso is very much in the same dna of, of scrubs I, yeah, I see a lot of connections there too mm -hmm. uh, so often we uh, kind of get rolling with a kind of a off the wall question in honor of ted and his crazy questions to get to know people. Mm -hmm. So uh, this one is, if you were singing karaoke, what would be your song? So <laughs> I love karaoke, although I'll, I'll amend that. I really love private room karaoke, where you have your own rented room with just your friends and close, you know, well-wishers. So you don't have to like annoy the whole bar or anything like that. So one of my favorite songs to do is can I kick it <laughs> yes, by tribe called? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> while my rapping skills are are not, you know, what I would <laughs> anyone would hope they would be, that song is like sort of just slow enough that I can I can make a passing attempt at it. <laughs> yeah, but the, and, there's still yeah. some pretty tricky rhymes in there. There are some pretty tricky rhymes. That's why I've had to. I, I may or may not have practiced in the shower, in the car, and <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh, that is excellent. I, I've never tried the private room karaoke, but hopefully someday I can be there for your can, can I kick it? <laughs> All righty. So the theme of this episode is on planning. And what kind of got us to, to think about you for this episode is that your book, Necessary Conditions, is really central to my teaching of future secondary teachers. It regularly comes up in evaluations and the, the questions that I ask of students is, one of the most valuable parts of the course. And you have a great chapter in there on planning. But I was wondering if, could you exp kind of let people know where, where did that book come from? In particular, kind of your, your central triangle? The book kind of started as a really small endeavor. In fact, when I pitched it to Stenhouse and, and my wonderful editor, Tracy Zager, it was supposed to be like a, a nice, quick, like, here's how to do problem-based learning or something like that in, in math classrooms. It's supposed to be nice and, and tidy. But the more time I spent in classrooms as an instructional coach and as a support person and reflecting back on my own teaching in high school, it, it, it felt like there needed to be more focused on other aspects of math, including math students' math identity, not just the, the tasks themselves, but how to facilitate the tasks. And so that's how I eventually ended up on sort of my three-pronged framework, which focuses on academic safety, quality tasks, and effective facilitation. And it's, it's presented as a triangle because each of those three things interact with one another. So like, for example, I can have the most wonderful task in the world. 
but if it's not facilitated well, then it's going to fall flat. And I, I'm speaking to my own experience as a, as a, as a high school math teacher there, if I have a, a, a classroom where students feel academically safe, they might be more willing to take risks and try more uh, challenging or cognitively demanding tasks. And um, there's also ways that you can facilitate in a way that fosters and potentially hinders students' sense of academic safety. So those are sort of the three sort of vertices of of the triangle that that I proposed. And, and, and the chapter on planning, what, what I was trying to do there was to get folks to think about not just planning the lesson or the task, but how do I plan in such a manner that promotes students' sense of academic identity? So how am I building that into my lesson plan just as much as, you know, my, the typical standards and a warm up and cool down that you often see in a lesson plan. So how do you do that? The chapter itself has a lesson plan, which asks teachers, it has like a template that actually asks teachers to identify how am I going to, like what students and what mathematical skills of theirs am I going to amplify today? And I, I say that it's a template because Honestly, um, I don't know if if many folks use it on a daily basis, but I think it is a good thing, particularly in a math methods course, to think about. Um, and it may maybe at least go through the exercise once. So, for example, if I have a student or two or three as a as a secondary teacher of the you know 120 students I see in a day or in a week or whatever. There might be two or three that are struggling or that I want to amplify their mathematical thinking somehow. And I found that it's really difficult to do that in an authentic way for a lot of folks to just do it without any kind of pre-thinking ahead of time. So I encourage teachers to actually think about, you know, think about three or four students that day they want to amplify, they want to like elevate their status in the classroom. And how are you going to do that? I think the easiest way to do that is to ascribe some sort of mathematical authority on them. So, for example, if I have a student that is uh, really adept at creating a visual or something like that, I might ask them to, to share their visual for the whole class that might help clarify the task that they're working on. If another student has really strong creativity skills or something like that, I might, I might try to amplify that or elevate that somehow. When you're planning for a lesson, I, I mean, I think it's just as important to consider those moments as it is to consider the sort of the standards that you're teaching, the the talk moves that you're going to utilize, which are also important. And that's just so rich. I mean, often in my court, like my motivating quote about planning is the Eisenhower quote about how mm -hmm. plans are useless, but planning is essential. And as you were talking about it, right, that that framework of just how I'm going to think through the facilitation. And then I also see it connecting so strongly with uh, academic safety or with even complex instruction ideas mm -hmm. about who has academic status. You're literally addressing that. And then connections with Lonnie Horn's book, Motivated, where she's kind of asking teachers to think about, don't think about kind of the generic student, think about your specific students and what do you know about them? There's a reason that my future teachers find that so meaningful. Yeah, I, I love Lonnie Horn's work and especially around, I mean, a, a lot of, frankly, a lot of the academic safety is inspired by 
by her and, and, and a handful of others work. And that, that just felt so important that that's why I almost felt it couldn't just be a book about tasks uh, that I had to uh, I'd honor and adhere to that as well. One thing I, I sort of encourage teachers to do, acting teachers, not, not pre-service teachers. So you said uh, thinking about specific students. And, and one thing I've had folks do when I've been supporting schools is to actually have them document the interactions that they have with students over the course of a week. And it doesn't have to be a huge thing, but just like every time you have a a sort of a, a small conversation with a student, just make a note of that on your class roster. And, you know, you have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. By Thursday, you might start seeing some some either some patterns or some gaps. And that's when the planning, you know, trying to plan for, it, it sounds inauthentic in some ways, to like plan for having informal conversations with students or, <laughs> and, and I guess it is to some extent, but it also, in my experience, has revealed some, like I said, some patterns and gaps. And that way you can make sure that you're connecting with each student. Cause it's really tough for a high school teacher. Like I said, when you have 120 students and there's the hustle and bustle of everything going on. And last week we had, you know, three snow days and things like that. It's, it's easy to sort of feel rushed, but it's also, we know, crucially important to have those connections with students. So to make that as much as part of your planning as other aspects of the lessons, I think um, can be really helpful for folks. That's kind of an interesting self-assessment. Like with, like with just about everything in the book, those are taken from and stolen from high quality math classrooms that, that I, that I saw. And I saw a school in Seattle that was doing that sort of documenting their interactions with students, not every day or not every week, not every month and every school day of the year, but like just for a week at a time, making sure that every student is feeling elevated and welcome in a math classroom. And I thought that was a wonderful strategy. And, and, and they, if I'm not mistaken, were also using complex instruction as well. So that sort of tied in really nicely to that. That makes me think a little bit of some anti-bias work, right? Where Exactly. Right. Where we, we know that kind of our what our gut directs us to there's a lot of there's a lot of good to that right we have yeah. schema for a reason but if we don't kind of interrogate that we're going to keep getting what we've been getting so i was at a i was delivering a workshop once in a school and i i told that story about this school in seattle that was that was undertaking this this you know pretty rigorous approach to planning for academic safety and one teacher was 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 pretty resistant and gave gave some not aggressive but just gave some pushback on that saying that kind of like i suggested that it felt inauthentic robotic mechanical and that she quote unquote just knows that she touches every student and and has a conversation with every student every day or every week and and to her i said if you're 100% confident, that's great. I know that I have, like you say, biases, implicit and explicit, that I am trying to get better about puncturing. And so I know that I, as a, with all my inherent bias that I, I don't like, and I, but I am aware that I have, I need to be really scrupulous about the interactions I have with students. I need to continually interrogate my own proclivities. I mean, most observers of teachers will note that the students that get the most attention are often the ones that are naturally charismatic, ask a lot of questions, are well, you know, know the system of schooling really well. 
-hmm. And the students that are often neglected are the ones that don't know the game of school as well, or maybe they have a language barrier or maybe other, like an, uh, any whole, any host of other reasons. And those students are the ones that often don't get that one-on-one -on -one attention from teachers as much as sort of the naturally charismatic and outgoing folks. Even as something as simple as being the introvert who, when mm -hmm, the teacher exactly. talks to you, they look, they look down. Yeah. Or, you know, give the short answer instead of, oh, yeah. I mean, one of the stories I discuss in the book is about a, a school in Indiana where the principal undertook the shadow a student challenge where the administrators, instead of fault, like observing a teacher, they observe a student from one class to the next and the next. This administrator chose this one student who was sort of a good student, but a relatively quiet student. And what she found that this student went through the entire class day without having like a real authentic conversation with a teacher, with any teacher, not just math, but any teacher. Mm. Again, I, I want to note that it's understandable considering the, the hustle and bustle of the school day. But that means that this student, at least on this day, did not have a meaningful interaction or a personal interaction with a teacher. You wonder if that's replicated over the course of multiple days and multiple weeks. That's where some of our students might not be able to you know, feel as engaged with the rest of the, the class and, and connected to an adult and a teacher in the school. And because they're seeing the students that are getting the attention. Yeah, of course. Very easy to infer that, oh, well, this just not must not be who I am. Yep. One of my classes suggested that, well, I bet you they get talked to when the principal's there. So what they should do is have the kid wear a <laughs> GoPro. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and I thought that uh, that sounds like a pretty valid project to me, you know, but GoPros on a few different students every day and then just even kind of fast forward through what is what is their day look? This might be getting too invasive with privacy, but you have to wonder about those like in, in sports and like in basketball and football that you can like now track player movement. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wonder what that would look like if we were, could track teacher movement or even student movement in a classroom. Some of the, some of the students I, I've been most concerned with, you just have to think that there's nobody who really understands what their experiences are like or they would intervene. Yeah. Teachers and administrators yeah. care. They wouldn't want that to be happening. Right. And and that's that's why there's a section in the book about passive caring and active caring and the difference between the two. And that is not to say that it like most teachers most teachers are generally caring people. Like I, I'm gonna paint with a pretty broad brush and say that most teachers they're not in the profession for the money. They're actually in it because they want to make a positive contribution. So it's very rare that I see a teacher act like actively dislike teaching or dislike children. However, it's really easy to fall into that passively caring mode where I say, you know, does anyone have any questions or something like that? Rather than going to individual students and saying, hey, student, do you have a question about what, but we, uh, what we did a few minutes ago during the, the whole class lecture or something like that? That makes me think about Cassia Wedekind's Who's talking? Who's not? And yep. I was actually just about to discuss her book, Hands Down, Speak Out. And that's for elementary teachers. But I think the lessons are very applicable to the secondary classroom. And her, she actually has teachers document who's talking and the direction in which they're talking. 
And she provides this really lovely example of sort of a before and after the intervention. Before the intervention, it was just, uh, what is it, all roads lead to Kevin or something like that, (laughs) I think is the name of the section, where basically, you know, one student was kind of dominating the conversation and consuming a lot of the oxygen in, in in the classroom. Then after employing some of the strategies in her book, they sort of did the same documentation and found a much more equitable discourse structure in the second one. And you can see the pictures like of, of the arrows and, and the student desks and which way the conversations are going. And it's, it's remarkable. And I, 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 though, though that book is for written for the elementary classroom, I certainly found a lot of connections with, with some of the gaps and some of the discussion patterns that happen in secondary classrooms as well. Yeah, very applicable. I love how kind of in those in, after post-intervention, the students are attending to it too. They're my right. who's who's it, talking and who's not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't read uh, Cassia's book, Hands Down Speak Out, I highly, highly recommend it. Anything that, else that you'd want people to be thinking about as they're thinking about their planning? I've talked a lot about planning for academic safety because that's that's often the most neglected on most lesson plans, that's just like not part of most lessons, pl- lesson plans and planning structures. But like I said, it's, that's, it's, it's equally important alongside the quality tasks that folks plan for. And so I recommend folks to really think through the types of tasks that they're offering students. There's even a little scoring guide, like an informal scoring guide in the book and some other places. There's lots of different like task scoring guides that you can find. And then for just with regards to effective facilitation, I do sort of propose there's sort of like two timeframes for for facilitation. There's sort of the in the moment talk moves that teachers employ, but then there's also sort of the longer term, almost like resting state of the classroom. So just how are you attending to both the sort of individual talk moves and then sort of the long-term norms and procedures that you're trying to embody? So how will you... How will you teach this norm this day? It may not be one singular talking move, but it might be just trying to make sure that this norm in the classroom is being um, adhered to or attended to or amplified throughout that day. So, uh, you know, just to sort of give, I didn't want to give short shrift to the tasks and the facilitation that you also have to plan for. No, that's really good to, to be intentional about. Yeah, I love the effect that building thinking classrooms has has kind of had on the, the profession. But I do find myself sometimes wishing they had read your book first. <laughs> right? I mean, I see I see them as kind of complimentary. Yeah. like building thinking classrooms sure. really picks up on that, like thinking about planning the facilitation and the task. But but there there's more to the picture. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I too admire that book as well, and you know, think that there's a lot, you know, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of like companionship between the two books, and there's, you know, there's stuff in building thinking classrooms that I, you know, didn't have in my book, and I think vice versa as well. I'm, I honestly, I'm honored to be in the same sentence as, as, as Peter's book, and I do see them as sort of companions, and there's certainly, you know, there's a Venn diagram of overlap, and then stuff that you know, Peter's book has that my do- mine doesn't and then my book has that Peter's might not. And that's, that's fine. That's, that's kind of the point of, of, of a book is right. to share new ideas and connect with the previous ones. No, that's a good framing of it. And, <laughs> and, and he's, he's trying to do something different, right? He's right. Exactly. Yeah. 
a very specific pedagogy. Right. Did you want to talk about your, your current research at all? If folks are willing to stick through it, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. So chapter 10 in, the, in Necessary Conditions is about assessment. And I'm really compelled by this, uh, by the notion of schools and teachers that utilize student mathematical portfolios. And so that's what my doctoral research has been about. That's kind of what my, <laughs> my spiel with a lot of uh, conference presentations has been about over the past six or seven years. And I think will continue to be about for a while. And this comes directly from a story that's, that I tell in the book from a school in, in Santa Ana, California, where students were looking at their portfolios and their advancement from a freshman to a sophomore to a junior and they were able to notice their own mathematical growth and how much more sophisticated their their writing and their math work became. And then they sort of reflected on that. And so my doctoral research, and I and I think my one of my sort of hobby horses going forward is going to be on student mathematical portfolios and what can we learn from students and their their work, uh, what kind of how how does does and how does the use of a portfolio system amplify students' sense of a mathematical identity, metacognition, and things like that? And so that's what I'm presenting for my doctoral research in a few weeks from now. You shared a preprint of an article that I don't know if we can share that with listeners yet. But... Sure, I think so. I think okay. it's available. It's kind of what I would expect from you, right? Thinking about teachers' perception of the portfolios and mm. how they use them and kind of very respectful of the professionals. And to be fair, it's 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 hard. I mean, that's one of the things I've I found, you know, in some of my interviews with with teachers who some who did, some who didn't follow through with with doing a full on portfolio that it was a lot of work. And then I think I think my next iteration is going to be how can we utilize this practice in a way that's actually sustainable? I have some like thoughts and some some pet thoughts, but I, I don't have any like formalized prescription on on how you do it in a way that is sustainable to your practice as a teacher. I've certainly seen it be maintained year over year when it's part of the DNA of a school. It's a lot more difficult when it's like one intrepid teacher that wants to try something different than the rest of rest of their colleagues and is building it from scratch. So there's some more research and, and work to be done there. I, I did find myself kind of wishing for an MTLT version, right, to share with uh, in-service and future teachers. Stay tuned. I, I will say that <laughs> that's one of the one of the journals that I'm sort of eyeballing because um, I would like to take some of the research from my doc my doctorate and you know repurpose it for something that's a little bit more practitioner facing and teacher friendly rather than in research journals. Oh, well, I, w I will look forward to that. <laughs> I mean it's, uh... as I'm sure you know it it does <laughs> it does take quite some time to get things through the peer review, editing and publishing system. It is frustrating kind of the academic pace. <laughs> that's been my number one frustration. If anyone interested in in jumping into a doctoral program, just be aware that <laughs> academia is slow, particularly compared to the, you know, a K through 12 experience, which is incredibly fast. <laughs> well, I, 
just do, so appreciate you being willing to take the time to talk with us and look forward to seeing you about and crossing paths and wish you the best with what's next. All right. Thanks so much, John. Please check out our show notes for more resources. I mean, I joke about this, like if, I mean, if you're in a school and you don't respond to an email in a day, people will think you've died or, <laughs> or like, or, or something happened and they'll like, you know, like they'll, they'll do a house call or something like that. I've learned with some folks in academia, a week is maybe a more appropriate time, if not longer. So just yeah. be aware of that all of you interested folks getting into, <laughs> into, into doctoral or, or whatever systems.